Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we interview thought leaders who have navigated adversity on their journey to resilience. Today, we have Sarah Nerritt, founding board member of Heartland High School, which is committed to providing recovery-centered education. Sarah, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, Sarah, I've had a chance to see your TED Talks. Um, you are just a wonderful thought leader. Uh, but I think I'll start just with what you're doing now. What Tell us about Heartland High School. Yeah, so really excited about Heartland High School. It is the only addiction recovery high school currently in the state of Ohio. There's about 50 of these schools across the country. So for the past... Um, Four years, a very committed, passionate board of directors, which I have the honor of being one of the founding board members of, have been working on building this school. We've been open for one year now. We just had our first graduate. Um, she was very excited to be valedictorian. <laughs> um, but really, the idea of these recovery high schools. <laughs> that's, how I, that's the only way I've become right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was pretty stoked about that. Um, <laughs> But when you leave treatment for drug and alcohol addiction, you know, they tell you to change your people, places, and things. And when you think about being a high schooler, it's pretty hard to change your people, places, and things. I mean, you go back home to your family, you go back to your old school, you go back to the same peer group. And, you know, so we see these really horrendous relapse rates for young people because we really we set them up for failure. And so Heartland gives them an alternative education, a different place to go where they are able to change their people, places, and things and be in an environment where they can just fully support their recovery. They're around peers that are also on the journey of recovery and get them to graduation and you know a life beyond their wildest dreams. We accept students grades nine through 12. Um, it's highly individualized because a lot of these students have had disruptions to their educational career. They've been in and out of treatment. So we really allow them the ability to catch up um, and individualize their learning. Um, but, you know, you're not going to get, you know, the band or, you know, the basketball team. Those are kind of some of the trade-offs you give going to this school or any recovery high school. So here you start, which, which is already an ambitious idea starting a high school and we have a pandemic and we close our schools that must have been interesting to navigate it was you know but i gotta say i think that the recovery community at large was kind of uniquely prepared for this you know we're we're already a group of people that you know rely pretty heavily on picking up the phone to call each other and kind of reaching out for help and talking with people. That's just so much a part of addiction recovery. Um, so while it was, you know, difficult, it, we're also people that like to hug a lot and, you know, hang out a lot. So while kind of switching to virtual was hard and that you lose that face-to-face -face interaction, um, I think that they've really thrived um, and have gotten innovative. I know Heartland was doing you know, unique things where um, they would, they were doing cooking lessons. And so food would be delivered to the students' houses and they'd all get on Zoom and they would cook together. And, you know, there were just different things um, that they were able to do to keep them engaged and 
going to think outside of the box. And this all began really in your teenage years, right? It did. Tell us a little about that story. Yeah. So, you know, my passion for this work really comes from my own experience being in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And, you know, I started drinking and using drugs when I was 15. I was just a freshman in high school. And, um, you know, I was a normal high school kid. I had friends. I did well in school, right? Like I didn't have any of the traditional risk factors that you would look for. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't obviously in my family, nothing like that. Um, you know, and, but what I do know for sure is that, you know, when I took that first drink and all my other friends took their first drink too, I had a very different reaction than they did, you know, where they, they wanted to put it down after one or it didn't taste good. And they were like, I I don't, I'll pass. You know, I was like, give me more, give me all of it. Um, and it, they say addiction is progressive. And so it, it progressed for me. I found myself in and out of treatment during high school. Um, you know, and I'm really grateful that, um, at 17, just at the start of my junior year of high school, I entered treatment for the last time and entered recovery and it has stuck ever since then. So right from the beginning, it was a different experience for you. Yeah. Tell us a little about that when you entered treatment. So I went to treatment the first time when I was 16. And, you know, of course, you know, my parents made me go, you know, it's, and I remember thinking like, okay, this is like a cool experience, right? Like I'm in this new city and um, I'm with all these like new kids and you know, I'm smart. So like intellectually, I understood why I was there and the point of it and what they were teaching. But my head and my heart were still really disconnected. And I think that that's what is so frustrating about addiction when we have loved ones and friends, coworkers, you know, people in our lives that we see struggling and we want to help is that head and that heart have to be connected for this to work. Um, And I think, you know, while I was forced in there, you know, you, you, you know, you could leave me there. Um, but ultimately I had to do that work of recovery for it to stick. Um, you know, and I, I, I I remember being able to verbalize at that point, like that I wasn't done yet. I hadn't had enough yet. I hadn't hit my quote unquote rock bottom. Um, and so of course, when I left treatment, you know, I didn't change my people, places and things. And it was just a matter of time before I relapsed and started to use again and it progressed, you know, even further from then because, you know, when you're in high school and you get pulled out of the, in the middle of the school year and you disappear for a month, everybody knows, (laughs) you know, like, you know, people, uh, my friends, their parents didn't want me to hang out with their kids anymore. Right. Like you now have this scarlet letter on you because like you're that kid in high school that went away to rehab. Like there was no hiding kind of what I'd been up to anymore. And, so that then kind of fueled my addiction moving forward, you know, and that, that I say that in no way to discourage, you know, kids from going to treatment in high school, but I think it's just the reality of it. Um, it was hard coming back, um, and being around those same people and kind of feeling like people knew my business. Um, so it, you know, it got worse. I, you know, kind of moved down the ladder of people I was hanging out with. They kind of got shadier and shadier and, you know, my drug use progressed, um, to where I was using IV heroin 
And that was like way before it was, you know, like a, a thing. Um, but uh, my parents found that uh, concerning <laughs> and uh, sent me back to rehab. And I just remember thinking like, you're ruining my life. Like, why are you making me go? You know, that's how it felt, right? Like you're ruining my life. Like you're interrupting my fun. Like I finally found people that used how I wanted to use. And now you're sending me away again. But um, the only thing that was different at that point is that I knew I kind of crossed this point of no return. Like now I've entered the world of IV drug use and that comes with different people, that comes with different expectations, that comes with different consequences than I had been experiencing before. And I remember having to really make a conscious choice. Like, am I going to commit to going down this path that I know is just going to end in, you know, jails, institutions, or death? Or am I going to make a switch and pursue a life of recovery? And, you know, I, I, I wish I could say that I, I, that that was a clear decision, you know, that that was easy to make, but it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I, that, that's what addiction does. Like it makes these like obvious, um, the obvious choice very hard. Um, it's not clear. And, um, I, my parents said if I didn't get sober, I would go to an all girls boarding school in Montana for two years. And that sounded really terrible. So <laughs> my plan was, well, I'll come home after treatment this last time, and I'll kind of go through the motions. I'll go to 12-step recovery meetings. I'll go see this counselor. I'll agree to the family contract that outlines you know, the rules for coming back home. But then in six months, trust will be restored, and then I'll go back to partying. But by going through the motions of recovery and being around it, like recovery is contagious. And it it worked me. <laughs> you know, I thought I was here going to work the system and game everyone. And I'm the one that got gamed, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, I remember having about six months sober being like, you know what, this isn't the worst thing. This isn't the worst thing. You said rock bottom. Obviously we hear that a lot. Do you know when that was? You know, I don't. And I, I think that term gets misunderstood a lot. That's kind of why I asked you. Yeah. It's not really a moment or some event. It's not like a movie, is it? Where I had this event and the switch turned for me, is it? For some people, you know, maybe it is. I think for me, there were lots of them. And I think especially, you know, with addiction, we have the ability to kind of get off this train at any stop. We don't have to wait for it to be these grave consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have to let people dig themselves so deep. You know, some people do, you know, and it's when they get, you know, real close to the bottom that they're finally in their head and their heart line up and they're like, Oh my gosh, like I want this. You know, I kind of, I had to make, you know, cause my like last use, right. Like I had to make that be my bottom because I wasn't given mm you know, the opportunity to keep digging, thank God. (laughs) Um, you know, so I kind of looked at like, you know, kind of just, this is my bottom, you know, what got me here, you know, all of this combined was enough kind of motivation. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, people say, Oh, you got to let them hit bottom. And they think that that means just let these people go about, you know, continuing to dig and hope they don't die, but there's a lot we can do, you know, to raise the bottom for people. Um, and I think that's what happened in my case. Is it always with you? I mean, yes and no. Recovery is so much of who I am. And, you know, it's how I start my morning and how I, you know, end my day. 
um, little things that I do. It's, it's my friends. It's, you know, it's throughout my house, little signs. Like I'm sitting at the dining room table. There's a recovery book, uh, in the middle of it. Right. It's just, you know, it's, it's everywhere, I guess, in the way that, you know, someone's faith would be, um, you know, or if someone had some other chronic healthcare condition that they needed to manage, you know, I don't, I don't view my recovery as something I have to manage, but it's definitely something that I get to take responsibility for. Like I get to do these things, um, and try and have that mindset about it. Like that this is really a huge privilege and a gift that needs to be taken care of and prioritized in order to keep it and all the things that come with it that are pretty good. Well, you can't point to a moment that one would call rock bottom. Are there moments? Are there times when it just sort of washed over you that things had to change? Yeah. I mean, there's a few that kind of stick out in my mind that I won't go into detail about, but they were just these little moments kind of throughout my drinking and using where I would almost cross like this new boundary that I would set for myself. Like, Oh, I'll never do that. And then you find yourself doing that and you're like, Oh, Whoa, like that's not good. But that feeling and knowing that wasn't strong enough to then stop doing what I was doing. You know, it was almost like out of body experiences. I could almost kind of come out of myself and kind of see what was happening and be like, I didn't foresee that (laughs) when I started just casually drinking with my girlfriends on like a Friday night, you know, and, and those things just kind of build and, you know, it's kind of this culminating moment for us that, you know, where kind of the light bulb goes off and people did things to accelerate that for me and kind of make me see it a little bit more. But really, I, you know, I think I did a lot of the work about being like, this is a perfectly good place to stop digging. (laughs) It's only going to get worse from here. Let this be it. Yeah. You said people helped you accelerate that recovery. I think so. You know, having some really good therapists that understood youth recovery and kind of what it was like to be, you know, a teenager and being told to change everything about you, basically, you know, and you already don't know anything about you, you know, and it feels like they're taking away like your thing that you do for fun. Like they're taking away your peer group and your after school activities, right? And your identity. Like it feels like they're just ripping all of this away from you. And th- some of the different services that we had in Houston where, I grew up, you know, really showed me that recovery can be fun and it can be attractive. And this doesn't have to be like the end of your life. Like you can still go to prom, (laughs) you know, like that was like, I was like thinking, you know, my life's over. Nobody's going to want to go to prom with me. Like those were the things I was concerned with, you know, and they showed me that this is just the beginning of a really great life for you beyond your wildest dreams, better than you could have ever imagined. And you're going to get tools and you're going to get an understanding of yourself that people two, three, four times my age are going to wish they had. I've come to view this as almost like it better prepared me for life. You know, I sometimes look at my other peers and I'm like, I have way more tools than they do to deal with life on life's terms, you know, and that's all because of recovery. You say recovery could be fun. It's, it's obviously, obviously hard work, right? It is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's being held accountable. It's, you know, doing a lot of writing and going over it with people. And, you know, I work a 12 step recovery program. So, 
you know, there's things that go along with that, working with others, um, taking them through the steps and showing up at meetings. But, you know, you find this fellowship and this camaraderie with people. Terrific. Sarah, you were also founder of something called Young People in Recovery, which was a national advocacy organization. That's right. In fact, when you did your TED Talk at OSU, I think you were still involved in Young People in Recovery, right? Yeah, it might have been. It was a neat experience. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, so it's a federal agency um, that leads our nation's response to mental health and addiction in this country. They pulled together a bunch of young people in recovery to come to Washington, D.C. and talk about our experiences you know, what worked, what didn't, what do we need more of, what do we need less of? And kind of through that, and then a bunch of subsequent meetings, we saw that there was really a lack of advocacy around youth recovery, you know, like what young people needs different than what quote unquote adults need. (laughs) You know, we have some specialized services like the recovery high schools, like collegiate recovery programs. You know, we need developmentally appropriate treatment that understands where we are in our development. So we, you know, all kind of came together to be like, this isn't being fully represented. So that was really kind of the idea behind why we needed to create an organization to represent that. So others could have the same experience that we did. And is that getting better? Access to treatment? Well, I don't know about treatment. Access to recovery certainly has. Treatment's next on my list of things to... Uh, fix. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference, recovery and treatment? So treatment is going to be stuff that's billable by insurance. Uh, it's going to be led by professionals, your you know, licensed therapists and medical providers, whereas then all the recovery supports are things after treatment that protect the investment that we made on the front end with your formal treatment. Like when people go away to 28 days or they go to the hospital. Because what we know is that if we can get people to five years of recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, their chance of relapse drops to 15%. But what we do in this country is we treat people for 30 days, 90 days, (laughs) and then wonder why we don't get the outcomes we hope to see. So we're really trying to build out that continuum of care to get people as close to that five-year mark as possible so we can really see those outcomes get better. So you go through recovery and you found this organization with the federal backing, PTR Associates, People in Recovery. Uh, You travel the country, involved in other recovery programs, pursue your master's in that, and now founded this school. Has all of that helped with your recovery to do that? It has certainly given me many things to process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, some new resentments I got to work through, you know, in some ways doing all that work is a very big responsibility. I've been very open about my recovery. You know, people will know who I am and it was just this extra responsibility that I now represent something to people. And so I have to be extra diligent because I'm an example, you know, and if I were to be in the grocery store and start cussing someone out, like I could be recognized. Or, you know, if I, God forbid, relapse, I recognize kind of what I represent. And I think that's kind of the dangers of being, you know, a quote unquote recovery advocate. You're held to a higher standard. 
yeah, as we should be, you know, but it changes things, you know, like I would go into recovery meetings and people wouldn't ask me how I'm doing. They would ask me about work, you know? And so I think as people that work in the field of, you know, treatment and recovery or, you know, behavioral health, I think it's important that we kind of carve out our own safe spaces and meetings where maybe we're with other professionals or we're with just a closed group of people. So we can really share what we need to share and not feel like, you know, I'm here as a spokesperson for something or, you know, if I talk about struggles at work, it's going to, you know, it's going to reflect negatively, if that makes sense. It not only makes sense, it's kind of an epiphany. We've been interviewing all of these people, many with similar stories, not always the same story. They're just wonderful stories of people like you that have gone through these challenges and made a decision uh, to be involved in recovery or they became a medical professional involved in treatment uh, to dedicate their lives to this challenge of addiction or mental health issues. And what I hear you saying is when you choose that, you give a little of your private self up, especially on this very important issue, your own recovery. Right. It's almost like you have to be a little more perfect because if something happens, others may feel failure. Right. Did I say that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's not that I'm like a celebrity or anything, but I'm sure it's like the same pressure that they feel just being very public and kind of what you represent. You know, if I were to be, you know, very publicly struggling, you know, would people think, man, addiction treatment doesn't work. You know, I view all of it. So the, in the 12 steps, the last one, Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And so not that, you know, my work, my paid work, you know, while I certainly do that, I, I carry the message of recovery to others and I try and live by spiritual principles there. You know, I think this volunteer work kind of fits into that too you know, and mm -hmm. I certainly also sponsor girls too, which is really what the 12th step is talking about. But mm -hmm. um, that's how I see it. You know, I see it enriching, you know, my 12th step work um, and being able to kind of carry the message of recovery on a much broader scale to influence policymakers, to influence where funding goes, to really rally a community around, we can do more, we can do better you know, while still continuing to practice these recovery principles in all my affairs, really uh, walking the walk, not just talking the talk. There's unique challenges, but I think in a lot of ways, it's really, it's helped me continue to rise to the occasion um, and want to put my, continue to put my recovery first and, um, and continue to invest there so that I can go out and do some of the big things that I hope to do. When you talk about spiritual and the 12th step, we always hear that. Does that mean religious? What does that mean, spiritual, to you? Yeah, that's a good question. It does not mean the same thing as religion. 12-step um, programs, all, you know, a lot, lots of the recovery programs are not religious programs. Um, they describe themselves as spiritual in nature. And, you know, what's cool about that is that you get to pick your own conception of a higher power. You can call it whatever you want. You can have it be whatever you want or not be whatever you want. It's you, you don't have to believe um, in anything, you know. Um, there are plenty of atheists in recovery. It works for them too, <laughs> you know, but it's really kind of 
coming to this understanding that I'm not in charge. I don't run the show. You know, I'm here to play my part, but there's many other people and there's many other things and, you know, continue to just live by these spiritual principles like humility, honesty, willingness, open-mindedness, integrity, things like that. So yeah, I've come to learn that the, you know, the point of my recovery has been to continue to grow in my spirituality and to deepen that and continue to seek that relationship with my higher power. And that continues to keep it rich and different. You said something like it also stokes some resentment. (laughs) I wasn't going to let you off on that. Tell me me what that means. Yeah, you know, not everybody does things that I like or I want or I agree with. You know, a bill passes you don't support. Um, A project takes longer than you want it to. It doesn't go how I think it should, you know. Um, You know, there's been some big resentments I've had to work through. It isn't quite like the other healthcare conditions. Like there's so much collateral consequence from addiction that make it unique and that those things then need to be addressed, right? The family, the criminal justice sector, healthcare, employment. Um, you know, there's so many things that addiction impacts. And so I think we've tried to kind of put it in this bubble and do these little things that are easy. We keep throwing money at the problem, but what we have not done is build the continuum of care. So we would rather keep, you know, throwing money at the problem in small chunks over the course of someone's addiction career, which the average age that someone enters recovery is age 41, (laughs) half their life basically. So we're going to throw money at the problem over those entire 41 years rather than investing that money on the front end, doing it right. And giving that person back years of their life. Mm-hmm. So I think we still got a lot of work to do. But I am optimistic. Why are you optimistic? I think we have more political will for this topic right now. I think we have more families and community members and people in recovery that are open about how addiction has impacted them. There's certainly still stigma there, but not as much as it was a few years ago to where I think we've just got more political will for the change. And there's so many things about society that we just want a pill to fix it. We want the easier way out. And recovery is hard work to have the changes, to have this spiritual awakening to, you know, really change your life. And it it is hard work. And that's not some, you know, quick, easy fix. Recovery is hard work. Yeah. You think it's harder for many now during this pandemic, being remote, not as connected, all this disruption, does it make it harder? I don't know. I've heard different things on that. I mean, in my own recovery meetings, there have been newcomers (laughs) coming on. I think the the authentic recovery community, I think, has really stepped up across the country to, to meet people and to be available to pick up some of the slack from, you know, where some of the treatment programs were like, oh, we're closing up, COVID, here you go, see ya. <laughs> you know, the recovery community was like, we have to be there for people 24-7. So I know for a fact there has been a lot of relapse. I know for a fact there has been more suicide during this time. So it has not been without consequence for people, but I think people were still being able to access a solution and maybe being stuck in their house with their family or whatever, maybe was their rock bottom, you know, made them pick up the phone and reach out for help. So I think time will tell um, when we're able to look back and kind of see some of the trends, but I know we're anticipating a surge in 
and treatment after this. What an interesting thought. I just assumed the answer would be, which was part of your answer. You know, there's more suicide, you know, there's more relapses, but you're also talking about this crisis as being a catalyst for recovery, that it might be that moment when people are reflecting on themselves or there's events happening that tells them it's time. Right. Maybe they're less distracted by other things and need to deal with it. Yeah. It's never an easy answer, you know, and I think that's what I love about the addiction world, but also get frustrated by it. Like it's not, it's very rarely for me, is it like a yes or no? It's always a, an and or, you know, or all of the above. I have friends that are recovering alcoholics. I've had many business colleagues that, uh, you know, dealt with addiction, drug or alcohol yeah. and in recovery. And yeah, alcohol is a real interesting one because the whole world wants you to have a drink. And I know that I've been with, you know, either a friend or colleague I knew was a recovering alcoholic. And I would come to a social situation and I'd watch as someone asked him three, four, yep. five times to have a drink. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I start to resent it. I'm like, get a clue, dude, you know. Right. <laughs> he does, he's not going to have a drink. And he'd be better off if you didn't ask him a fifth time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but you, you know, it's, 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 it's his or her story to tell. So you just mm -hmm. sort of navigate it. And I, you know, I just sit there and I think about what a challenge. Recovery takes such bravery. It takes such bravery in a world that I still think, you know, nobody really, Sarah, if they haven't been in your shoes or close to your shoes, really understands what you mean when you talk about this journey of recovery, do they? No, there's, there's definitely some, you know, non-recovery people that get pretty close, um, you know, but I think that's why recovery is, you know, we really try and encourage that folks, you know, be a part of recovery support groups and, you know, different recovery fellowships and, you know, engage with peer support to be around those folks that understand, um, you know, kind of the, the isms, you know, and, and all that we go through and, you know, just all the, the ways in which it keeps kind of manifesting itself today. Um, you know, that's, you know, I have had many therapists over the years that were not in recovery that were incredibly helpful. I have friends not in recovery that, you know, are incredibly supportive, you know, so it's, you know, I think, I think all of that just makes it, makes life a whole lot sweeter. Um, but there's definitely no question that, you know, there's that therapeutic value of one alcoholic helping another. There, there's some, there's this bond, you know, they talk about it being like, um, you know, being on a, a shipwreck together, you know, and then you survive it, you know, like a, it's, it's just this experience. Um, you know, there's room in my life for other people, you know, but, um, I, I'm in trouble if I kind of stop hanging out with the recovery community, that's for sure. It's interesting. You are in the pharmaceutical business. Tell me again who you're working for. Yeah, I work for Alchemies. We're a biopharmaceutical company and we have primarily in the you know, behavioral health space. We have a medicine for schizophrenia and we've got one for alcohol and opioid addiction. So you believe in it. Do you believe in medicine for behavioral health? 
I think it's a tool, one tool. And there's lots of tools. And are we making progress there? I think so. I think there's always going to be the people that want to over rely on medical solutions and want to just fully put this in the medical sector and think that we just need medicine. I mean, there are people that believe that now, but I think the collective wisdom of the recovery community and, and I'm sure of the folks covering from mental illness would say the same thing. Like there's a lot of things you got to do for your recovery. It's not just take medication. Um, and some people don't take medication. Um, so continuing to hammer home that comprehensive picture um, is really important. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we're getting um, a lot better, you know, making sure people have access to their medications, um, that there aren't, you know, prior authorizations and different barriers for them, getting creative and how we get them to people. Like, how do we really reach people where they're at? Well, I feel like it's almost nascent still, you know, it's actually a wonderful pioneering field. There's so much more to learn and so much more to, to, to do in it. Um, what's your aspirations for Heartland High School? Yeah, do you know, just continue to grow Heartland Columbus and then start looking at replication. We actually have a study going on right now um, to see if there's another community in, in Ohio that is ripe for a recovery high school. And then I think beyond that, to really look at Heartland being a thought leader a policy leader, you know, a, a catalyst for adolescent addiction treatment and recovery in the state of Ohio. Because we have closed so many of our adolescent treatment programs um, for addiction. We've got, you know, more mental health programs opening up, but that's not the same as an addiction treatment program. Making sure that we don't lose that continued focus on addiction and then making sure we have places for our young people so that they can recover close to home and that they don't have to go out of state. They can be here with their family and their community. And, you know, that we get to this point where it's a point of pride for Ohio, you know, like, heck yeah, we support young people in recovery. Like we believe in these kids. We want to hire them. We want to champion them to go to school. We want to mentor them. Like we are so proud of them and are investing in that treatment and recovery infrastructure for them. It sounds wonderful. Sounds like Heartland High School is a wonderful beginning. I know it's going to grow. And, and uh, what you're saying is you'd love to have them throughout Ohio and throughout the country make real change. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sarah Nared, you're wonderful. That was great. You are definitely a great example of resilience and a great journey. And I think we're all quite blessed that you've uh, dedicated your passions and obviously intelligence and great skills to this field. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sarah Nared is the co-founder of Heartland High School, dedicated to recovery-centered education. To learn more about Heartland, visit heartlandhighschool.org. Voices of Resilience is produced with the support of the marketing engineers at the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To hear more from our series, visit VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com. Many thanks to our producers, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, and my favorite partner, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.